electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Cray America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The Federal Open Market Committee has spoken, and the reverberations are going to be with us for a long time. Every year when the Fed honchos go to Jackson Hole for some R&R and togetherness, the Fed chief makes a point of being cerebral, theoretical, relaxes, waxing on the vicissitudes of the economy and the jobs. Not this time. This time, Jay Powell made it clear that he will slay inflation by any means necessary. And that includes keeping rates higher for longer. Initially, the market just hated it, with everything collapsing all at once last Friday. But today, after a nasty opening, we somewhat rebounded from our lows, Dow only dipping 184 points, S&P declining 0.67%, NASDAQ losing 0.1.02%, although the average actually did spend most of the days rallying from deep in the hole before giving up the gains in the last hour. I do think, though, it is dawning on people that we actually want this tougher incarnation of J-PAL. We're all sick of inflation. We want it stopped. And maybe we are willing at last to take some pain the house to make of it happen. Pain. I think Powell's speech was a brilliant move because his aggressive wording was the equivalent of hitting us with a quarter point rate like all in itself. Except he didn't have to do a thing other than open his mouth. Take mortgage rates. They jumped to almost 6% today because of the speech. Almost a quarter point of move. The wealth effect from lower stock prices also, it gives you a big hit. Slows the economy down. Again, Powell needs to do that. He's trying to make people do a little fear of spending. He wants you to hunker down and take stock of whether you need anything else. His goal is to be stern and be tough with you about what he will do if we keep spending like crazy, both businesses and people. That's the quickest way to cool down an overheated economy. Remember, he's in a tough spot because employment's so high, but he's got to do something. Those are all good things. But let's take this forceful pal at his word, because he basically had on Friday what I call a Volcker moment. Paul Volcker is the Fed chief who took rates to the high teens to break back of inflation in the early 80s. And it worked. But he was also the most hated man in America. 
We're nowhere near where we were back then, but inflation's bad enough that Powell has to act decisively, lest things get a lot worse. So what exactly does Powell want to see? First, we know what's not enough, commodity inflation. That's not going to cut it anymore. He just doesn't think that matters. The vast majority of commodities have already peaked. Oil, which had fallen from $120 to the high 80s, okay, it started to bounce back, but I think this current level is in the mid-90s is the high end of oil's new range. We actually sold some of our double-weighted oil positions for the Chapel Trust. Of course, uh, club members know about this, meaning we have more than 8% oil. It represents only about 4% of the S P 500. Copper, aluminum, lumber, they're all down for the year. So many others have come down hard, too. These commodities, of course, can bounce back, but that seems unlikely with a slowing economy. And don't forget, Russia is flooding the world with oil to pay for its war against Ukraine. So that will serve as a lid around these levels. Here's, though, what I think Powell's really after. And it is, as I said, it's a tough spot. From the Fed's perspective, the most important thing is to prevent a wage price spiral, a vicious cycle where rising wages leads to rising prices, which in turn leads to rising wages again, and so on. It's a reverberation. To do that, Powell has to stop wages from growing. Specifically, he needs to see a peak in wage growth and a peak in hiring before he'll, he'll stop tightening. It might be good enough to get several months of flat wages that might influence him. And while the unemployment rate isn't all important, Powell probably does want to see it go from, say, 3.5% to over 4% or even higher. He wants people to have a little fear. Fear of just quitting and maybe not be able to get a job. The real issue here is, is that while Powell may have to scare us, you and me, to spend less, he's got a worse problem that he can't do a thing about. And that's the federal government. See, the feds have pumped tens of billions of dollars in the economy at just the wrong time. Many of the projects that Congress just authorized require highly skilled workers, and the government can pay above market rates. Good luck finding engineers for the private sector after the fund working for the federal sector. This morning, I found myself criticizing a guest who was saying that Chairman Powell's so far behind the curve that he let too much growth happen. Now he has to throw us into a recession to cool things down. You know what? That, that just angered me. I think this is wrong. It's nonsense. Much of this inflation is caused by shortages related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Some of it is lingering COVID hangover. There's certainly freight problems. There's obviously a lot of problems with China bringing in stuff. And now Congress just spent a fortune on hiring, hiring people right when we've already got major wage inflation. I see a major wage bid up from both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act which are coming on top of the big bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed last year. There's some good stuff in these bills, but the timing is terrible. If only they would have a massive housing bill to lower rents, which is what's really needed besides trying to curb wage inflation. That would be very deflationary. Let me put it this way. These three pieces of legislation would have been perfect if we had 9 to 10% unemployment, even 6 to 7%. We could maybe even handle the strain with 5% unemployment. That wouldn't be great. But 3.5%? That will obviously add fuel to the fire. Now, we may need better infrastructure and more domestic security foundries and alternative energy, three issues that I've fought for. But right now, we need to cool down the job market or else the Fed's going to just crush this economy. That's what happened on Friday. That's what he said. That either means more layoffs or revamped immigration policy where we airlift engineers and programmers to the rest of the world. And politically, that's the third rail. It's not going to happen. Give this backdrop what can Powell do. He's got two choices. Furiously dump longer-term bonds to raise mortgage rates. Sell, 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 sell. Or boost the short-term federal funds rate, or both. 
The combination would expand the cost of borrowing money dramatically. Once the Fed does that, many people curtail their spending plans and business will postpone their expansion plans. Any company that needs financing will have a very hard time finding it. And businesses will stop competing with each other for workers. That would end the job hop. And the job hop is behind so much of the wage inflation. Now, Powell may be catching another lucky break. When I ask CEOs in Silicon Valley whether they have a hard time getting employees, they no longer indicate that it's as difficult to find people quite a change from last year. That's because so many startups that had done a couple rounds of financing have now found their coffers empty because nobody wants to buy the stocks of these companies. You can't do an IPO here. Same thing with the SPACs. And I think many of the software IPOs from the last two years are about to run out of money. Of course, there are tons of other companies that are in trouble, too, like most of the Internet clothing companies, financial service companies that were uh, fintech, that allowed people to get loans that maybe shouldn't have, much less demand for that as rates soar. Until Friday, I wasn't sure if Powell had the guts to pressure the economy with relentless rate hikes. But simply by signaling what he wants, that he won't stop, as he did Friday, Powell may have a chilling effect on every bank that fears making bad loans, especially to businesses that can't tap the public markets, meaning pretty much all financial institutions worried about all loans. After Friday, we know Powell means business. What does that mean for stocks? Well, here's the bottom line. If you have stocks of companies that have great balance sheets and plenty of cash, I'm not worried about you. You'll do just fine. Companies with high dividends that give you big yields, you'll do well. But if you own the stocks of companies that are losing money, Powell's message to you is start selling now before he closes the door on their funding entirely. Let's go to Eric in Tennessee. Eric. Thanks for taking my call. Of My question is in regard to, uh, to CBR Group, uh, CBRE Group, ticker CBRE. Mm-hmm. As you know, CBRE provides a wide range of services that revolve around commercial real estate. The company doesn't own the actual real estate, but rather provides services to those that do. This Correct. allows CBRE to, to make its money out of uh, rental revenues and also lowers the risk rather than holding the actual properties. This model allows the company to take an asset light approach and earn high profit margins with little leverage. CBRE currently has a P.E. of 14.5, price to sales of 3.4, right. and a debt capital of 25%. I think the stock is inexpensive. I think Mr. Solentic is doing a good job. I think people fear that there will be less turnover. Other people fear that there won't be as many businesses that stay in the commercial market, frankly, because of this problem with work at home. And it's the work at home problem that has made these guys' stock be so difficult, even if that may be wrong that it's the case. Now, if you own stocks of companies that are losing money, hey, Fed Chair Powell's telling you, maybe you got to start selling it before he closes the door on their funding entirely. But if you have stocks that have good balance sheets and plenty of cash, you'll just do just fine as he tightens and tightens. On Man Money tonight, Splunk struggled last week after earnings. So what did Wall Street dislike about the quarter? I'm going to discuss it with the top press. Then after Friday's speech from Jay Powell, how do we get a read on the ups and downs of the markets? I'm consulting the technicals to see where we could be headed. And analysts seem to get Snowflake's quarter all wrong. But why? I'll reveal what I think is the cloud company's secret sauce. And I like it. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. 
Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Hey, what the heck happened to the stock of Splunk last week? When the business analytics and cybersecurity software company reported last Wednesday, the results looked pretty good. Splunk delivered a nice top and bottom line beat and raised its full year forecast on nearly every line. Emphasis on nearly, though. There was one not-so-hot line item in their outlook. Splunk didn't raise their annual recurring revenue guidance, RRR. In fact, they cut it by $250 million, and that's after the cloud revenue came in little light during the quarter. In response, the stock tumbled 12% last Thursday. I don't know. Seems excessive to me. But this big but. The key story with Splunk has been their transition to a software-as-a-service business model. And when they took down their annual recurring revenue outlook, that suggests maybe there's some sort of speed bump. So let's check in with Gary Steele. He's the president and CEO of Splunk. Get a better read on the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Steele, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Thank you, Gary. Now, look, uh, these things are tricky because uh, let's say we were talking with Salesforce right now. They had a kind of a similar thing. There was uh, some customers that didn't necessarily want to uh, you know, they, they elongated. Workday talked about how it was a little bit better than that. But everybody in your business seems to have hit the actual speed bump in different ways. Can you tell me what's really going on? Because if it's business as usual, I want to know and I want to buy. Yeah, no, great question. So we were very pleased with our top and bottom line beats. Where we did see some slowdown, though, was with some critical cloud migrations. And customers just, uh, while they're going to go to the cloud, they've got hybrid environments. They will always have an on-prem footprint. And we, we saw some delays in those projects. But at the same time, I know you make more money if it's on-prem. You have to pay somebody if it's on, on, on the cloud. I mean, does it pay to move quickly to the cloud? I know that your predecessor wanted you to do that. And all the time that he was here, he always talked about it. But then I wonder whether you don't make a lot of money not in the cloud. 
No, we're really happy uh, with the gross margins that we deliver in the cloud. And we think for the long-term benefit of the customer, there's lots of capabilities that we can continue to deliver and add great value to their environment. So we think that migration is important. And we just saw those customers that had migrations coming up, they slowed down a little bit. All right, so look, you've visited, what, 100 customers in 100 days. Can you give us a sense of whether people are top-down worried by the Fed, by the world, or is it just kind of some sort of ennui where everybody's looking at everybody else and saying, uh-uh, I don't want to make a move. The other guys aren't making moves. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So uh, last quarter is my first full quarter with Splunk. I did 100 customer meetings in my first 100 days, um, and I'm glad to have accomplished that milestone. I heard a number of things. I think one, uh, first and foremost, was that Splunk is so mission critical to their business. We underlie security. Security's become a data problem. We couldn't be more important and more critical. We're underlying their application environment where, where we're making their applications that much more resilient. What we were faced with simply was customers that had the opportunity to delay some of those complex cloud migrations. I don't believe that we will see long-term, um, a long-term down cycle. I just think we saw some slowdown. Huh. All right, well, let's talk about an outfit that's seen a uh, couple tough quarters, but we know is going to be your survivor. That is one of yours that you mentioned, uh, Walmart. I mean, Walmart wants to have as much security and they want to have as much data analytics as possible. Now, a company like that needs to, it, it can't afford to slow down its spend during a tougher time for the country. No, and I think the one thing that is really clear is the security is is very resilient in this particular time. We've, we're in a pretty turbulent uh, um, geopolitical time, and I think there's uh, a lot of concern on behalf of security leaders that they need to ensure that they're investing to keep their um, in customers well protected. All right now, you're uh, you had a great career. Uh, have you been able to go and touch people who have been at your previous outfit and say, listen, you ought to be thinking about Splunk? You know, I haven't been recruiting uh, my old colleagues, but we're recruiting amazing people to be Splunkers here. And there's just an amazing amount of enthusiasm for our overall mission and what we can deliver for customers. So, uh, should we expect that maybe the annual recurring revenue can pick up or is that just not the key metric and the street is thinking that it is? Well, annual recurring revenue and revenue will converge for us. And as you saw in our top line, we had nice growth at 32%. And we feel very good about this balanced approach that I basically put in place when I got here. We believe that we can deliver great long-term durable growth while increasing operating margins and cash flow. And even in my first quarter, I felt good that we, we saw some result. We upped our guidance um, on the bottom line, and we think there's more, more opportunity there. So we, we feel really good about that balance. All right, so who are you seeing uh, in security that you could possibly partner with or you, uh, or you actually are up against? Because I think security is probably the best area in the country to be in for anyone in technology. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, Splunk's really at the heart of security operations. And so all of the vendors that you're familiar with, that you talk to all the time, we basically ingest all of that rich information into our environment to help CISOs make better decisions. So whether it's Palo Alto, CrowdStrike, or any of the other amazing security companies out there, we basically leverage all that information to drive uh, better outcomes for security leaders. Oh, I think it sounds terrific. I mean, look, we've got a, it's a tough time for people in your business, but the business is not going away, unfortunately, because the security business is getting better 
and better, as you know, because you taught right. me that. You taught me that. That's Gary Steele, Splunk President and CEO. We bank with Steele. Always made us money. Man, money's back after the break. Coming up, what do the rest of us do while the Fed tries to slay a dragon called inflation? Kramer breathes fire off the charts. Next. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. How do we get a read on this tricky market? Now that the Federal Reserve has lowered the boom on us again, with J-Pal coming out last Friday and vowing to hit us with as many rate hikes as it takes until the beast of inflation is finally slain. We had an amazing rebound from mid-June through a couple weeks ago, in large part because Wall Street got too negative in the spring. We thought inflation would be endless, and we thought the Fed would have to crush the life out of the economy in order to beat it. Since then, we've gotten some real positives on the inflation front, like crashing commodity prices. Hey, how about these inventory gluts showing up all over the retailers? Every, the mall is, is glutted. But as I told you last week, some investors were getting ahead of themselves, assuming the Fed would start going easy on us. Even though wage inflation, which is what we're focused on, remains very high, and Powell has every reason to keep tightening because of it. Now that the Fed's given us a reality check, it's time to recalibrate. We hear a lot of commentators talking about how this chart... This charts this year look appallingly like the rerun of 2001 or 2008. Two terrible years for the market. Remember, we debunked those last week. I don't buy those analogies. In 2001, the market got pulverized by September 11th. In 2008, about the same time of year, we got hit with the Lehman Brothers collapse that triggered the most acute phase of the financial crisis. I know anything's possible, but I really don't see anything remotely similar lurking here. Sure, Powell's got to keep tight. We all agree. And that will slow down vast swaths of the economy and could potentially cause a nasty recession. That's not remotely similar to the financial crisis, though. Right now, we're looking at a garden variety rate hike. It's not great, but given how low unemployment is right now, it's not the end of the world either. I've lived through many of these, and there's almost always a way to make money when the Fed is tightening. You just, you just got nowhere to look for it. 
And that's something that we do here on Mad Money. Now, if this year isn't a remake of 2001 or 2008, uh, how about a better analogy? Tonight, we're going to do just that by going off the charts once again with the Titan, with Larry Williams, the legendary technician and market historian who's been at this game since I was a teenager. Now, Larry's written more than a dozen books, and he's created tons of his own proprietary indicators, which you can find on his site. I want you to take this down because it really is pretty amazing. It's called IReallyTrade.com. Most importantly, this man's record with us, it's stunning. It's stunning. Uh, he made, made a series of the best country calls I've ever seen. He called the COVID bottom in April 2020. Most of Wall Street still thought the sky was falling. He called the latest bottom earlier this summer when everybody was convinced the price of oil was headed to 150, where it would kill the whole economy. He knew otherwise. What does he see now? Well, you're going to love this. Can we find a historical analog for the current market? This guy is the master of looking at the history of the market and spotting patterns or cycles that tend to repeat themselves. We believe it in sports. We believe it in art. We believe it in this. This time, nature's got it all over the place. This time, he set out to find the best fit for the last 250 days of market action. Looking for analogs from 1990 forward using timing solution software. Using the years since 1990, Williams found that 14 of them were good forecasts. That's 42%. Catching the trends, most turning points or uh, prior years. 11 of them were, low, they were just total fares in forecasting at all the next year's trend or even pivotal moments. That's a third. Finally, eight of them, or 24%, were so-so forecasts, equal parts correct and incorrect. In short, looking for historical analogs, almost 60% of the time, they failed to correctly forecast the market's action in the following years. Sometimes, though, they work like a charm. For example... Take a look at the daily chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in 2018, dark line, okay? Turns out the year 2000 was a 40% fit to 2018, meaning it picked up a lot of the changes in the market's trajectory. Remember, 2000 was the dot-com collapse. 2018 turned out ugly when, uh, turned out right at the end when j vowed to raise interest rates aggressively in order to stamp out nascent inflation. So these are good overlaps. If you extrapolated from there and took your cue from 2001 to 2019, you picked up some important turning points. Take a look at this one. Next, you can see my turning points. See, this catches a lot of them. Next up, check out the action in 2020 when COVID hit, which is in black compared to the action in red in 2009 when the market bottomed during the financial crisis. You can see the correlation was incredibly powerful. Williams says there was a 77% fit. Makes sense. Both years saw the market collapse in the first quarter, only to find a floor in March and then rebound nicely for the rest of the year. So let's say you extrapolated from there and used 2010 as a forecast for 2021. Take a gander. Again, surprisingly close in terms of nailing important turning points. And the overall trajectory is pretty darn close, too, isn't it? I bring these up because you need to know that when this kind of methodology works, it really works. All right, so how about the current moment, which is what you've been waiting for? Uh, Williams says the closest analogy for 2021 was actually 2013. Take a look. Last year is in black. 2013 is in red. That's a 95% fit, practically lockstep. So if we push that forward, could this year turn out to look like 2014? When you look at the comparison, the overall trajectory was much more positive in 2014. But there's also some real overlap in terms of important highs and lows. After running in June and July, the market took a big hit in August of 2014. Not unlike what happened last week, right? And then it took off again. 
through the end of the year, with the exception of that short, sharp pullback in October that we're going to have to be ready for, people. You know that's coming. Which was, and that was, you know what this was? And why I don't think it's going to duplicate. This was the Ebola scare, okay? Now, we're not going to, well, hopefully, you don't have another Ebola scare then. But that's what caused that big, big decline. If Williams is right that we can be taking our cue from 2014 here, that's surprisingly positive. Much better than 2001 or 2008 analogies that we hear constantly. In other words, I look at this and I think, you know, this makes more sense in 2001, 2008. And if it's so, then I like where we are. I think we're at a good level to buy. However, if you want an even better fit for the action, get this. Williams Williams says it's 1962. Take a look at the Dow's recent performances in black while the 1962 performance is in red. (laughs) Can you believe this? Might as well be joined at the hip. And once again, the 1962 analogy says we could have a very nice run in November and December after some sideways action. And again, that turbulence that we're so worried about in October. Finally, if you want to see something really eerie, I want you to suspend your animation for a second. I want you to check out this one. The Dow's recent action is in black, while its action in 1891 is it. This guy likes to go back is in red. Once again, the closest historical parallel Williams can find suggests that we have pretty okay, pretty good time at the end of the year. Okay, so I know this is just for some of you it's hocus pocus. For me, I think it's gospel. I love it so much because the guy's been so right, Larry Williams. I really trade. Here's the bottom line: these historical analogs tend to be pretty hit or miss. But when you look at the years with the closest fit to 2022, the charts as delivered by Larry Williams suggest the rest of the year is looking pretty darn good. Despite what we went through last week, he's a buyer, not a seller. And don't forget, a little bit of October turbulence. But we want to buy, buy, buy that too. Kyle in Illinois. Kyle. Jim, help me out with Coles. I, I own a yeah, large sure. position, right about 28 bucks. And at 37 before the earnings, I thought I was fine. And then it just looked like they pulled a Walmart and just guided everything down. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I already own TJX, which has been terrific. I got a dividend right around the corner. Number one, is it safe? And number two, what do you recommend at these prices when I have a large position? I'm trying to scale out of it. Okay, I don't trust Coles. Uh, I don't think they had a good quarter. I went through the quarter. They have inventory galore. They did say they'd stand by the dividend. I, I didn't like that because I don't want to hear out of the company standing by the, the dividend. I think that it could go back to above 30 and above 30, sir. I have sell, to sell, say sell. I would cut back my position. Let's go to Matt in Wisconsin. Matt. Jim, booyah. Thanks for having booyah. me on. What's going I'm on? About, I'm talking about Abdi. It's come down big since April with the impending patent cliff on their mega drug, Humira. Right. At the same time, they've finished their acquisition of Allergan and Botox, and they're generating cash flow hand over fist. I feel like they could use that cash to make another acquisition and supercharge their pipeline, but I'm not sure that's a great reason to own the stock. So should I sell, hold? Uh, no, no I think Richard Gonzalez, and I think this is a great question. My Chapel Trust owns it. We write about it constantly. Uh, uh, Jeff Marks and I, we both believe in it. It's got a 4% yield. We're not that worried about the patent cliff. They are plenty insulated. They have a lot of cash. And I think you stick with AbbVie. Right, when you look at the years with the closest fit to 2022, the charts, as interpreted by the great and legendary Larry Williams, Suggest that even after what we went through last week, the rest of the year is actually looking pretty darn good, except for a little bit of an October problem. He'd be a buyer right now, not a seller. 
Watch one man Muddhead, including my take on Snowflake. Could the data kingpin continue to bring a blizzard to Wall Street? I'm digging into the details. Then, I think it's time to have a serious conversation about the impact of working from home on corporate America. I don't think you'll like what I have to say, but I'm going to give you my take on the situation anyway. I don't do it to please. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. We're now in the midst of off-cycle earnings season, where we get results from all sorts of companies with weird fiscal calendars, including most of the high-profile cloud software names. Last week, we heard from a handful of these outfits, and the reactions were, let's say, wildly divergent, some disappointed, <laughs> and some sold their stocks just obliterated. Others beat expectations and sold their stocks soon. The best of the bunch? The best was Snowflake. The cloud-based data warehousing and analytics software company, which reported excellent numbers last Wednesday, sending its stock up 23% the next day. And it even managed to rally on Friday when the Nasdaq plummeted nearly 4%. That's saying something. Now, some of this is because Snowflake reported a very good quarter. But most of it is because almost nobody saw it coming. Wall Street was incredibly bearish on this one. This was an amazing darling going into earnings. Two separate analysts downgraded it earlier this month, though, while another initiated coverage with an actual sell, sell, sell. Yes, a sell. And a legion of them cut their price price. How did the analysts get it so wrong? Well, you know what? It's not easy to understand because it's such a complicated business, but Snowflake has an unusual business model for a cloud software company. And that's made this an extremely divisive stock. Most of these cloud plays have what's known as a software as a service model, meaning they're selling subscriptions. You pay a fixed amount every month, you get to use the software. Historically speaking, software as a service is a relatively new thing. In the old days, nearly all software companies depended on one-off purchases, and it was on-premise. But in the last decade or so, practically everyone has embraced this new model, put it up in the cloud. And this was really pioneered by Salesforce. Salesforce.com really created the cloud to some degree. Now, Snowflake's different, though. They don't sell their customers a flat subscription. They have a consumption-based model. I want you to understand it because it's so different. They charge their clients based on the amount of computing power and storage they use in a given time period. In other words, they charge you like an electric utility. There's nothing counterintuitive about Snowflake's business model, though. It's fairly new to the software space. Management argues that this model is much, much better for their customers, which is almost certainly true. But what about the shareholders? The beauty of most software as a service stocks is that their subscription-based model gives them tremendous visibility into the future. And investors crave this kind of predictability. Sometimes these contracts are three years long. In theory, Snowflake can't give you that. But in practice, their consumption-based pricing has given them a lot more upside. For Snowflake's first six quarters as a publicly traded company, they had triple-digit revenue growth every single time. This was the fastest-growing large company in the software space that I've ever seen. Why? Because if customers like the product and find it useful, they'll use it more and more and end up paying more and more. With the subscription model, they make the same amount of money either way, no matter how much is used. So why were the analysts so worried about them? Simple. The usage-based pricing model gives them more upside in good times. But they were concerned, how about the bad times we are obviously now having? Snowflake was founded in 2012. They've never had to deal with the true recession, right? What if the economy slows down and customers start using the service uh, and, and let, they have, uh, in order to save some money, they cut back? 
The assumption here was that Snowflake would be a lot more volatile than its cloud companies. I don't blame anyone for thinking this because it seems almost self-evident. When you look at the analyst downgrades and price target cuts from earlier this month, they were all worried about declining usage rates as the economy heads into a recession. These analysts are not clowns. They checked in with Snowflake's customers and sales partners, and the story they told was generally less positive than it had been a few months before. Didn't help that the stock's always been very expensive. But then Snowflake reported last Wednesday night, and the results were truly magnificent. I know, I was shocked. The company delivered much higher than expected revenues. They're up 83% year over year. Their operating income came in positive. Wall Street was widely expected to be negative. Look at that, it went from a loss to a positive. They also gave robust guidance for the current quarter and even raised their full-year forecast. Forget doing worse. Snowflake obviously is in better shape to do incredibly here. Everybody was worried about the usage-based pricing model, but on the conference call, CEO Frank Slootman, long a favorite of Mad Money, explained that it's a huge asset, not a liability, because it helps win lots of new business even when the economy's slowing. As he put it, they can sign a contract with us but then they can throttle up or down how much they want to use. You can't do that in a software-as-a-service model. You're going to pay no matter what, whether you're using it or not. So this gives customers actually more confidence to contract with us, knowing that they can throttle up and down. You know, that is it's such a good point. I'm surprised these analysts who downgraded didn't get that. That's just so key. You can decide to use more tires than you use or, or less. At a time when so many cloud software companies are wringing their hands about more measured uh, customer buying or elongated sales cycles, remember I, decided, I, I gave those definitions last week, meaning it's much harder for them to win new business, which often requires that three-year commitment. Snowflake's winning lots of business because their model's low commitment. CFO Mike Scarpelli went into more detail. He explained that new customers typically start small, then take about nine months to, re- to really start to consume. You can sign up, try it, then if you like it, you scale up. If you don't like it, you stop using it, and there's no problem. A lot of these new customers have an on-demand model, so they're not on the hook for anything if they don't want to use it. That's fantastic. After the conference call, Slootman came on our show, and he made such a compelling case. Listen to this. I think the model actually works better uh, in a down market where people are, you know, having uh, headwinds and trepidations and not knowing which which way the world's going to go. You like the elasticity, uh, being able to throttle back, throttle up. You know, when you have the confidence in a, in a traditional subscription model, you don't have that luxury. That's so smart. Well, no one ever said Slootman wasn't one of the smartest people in the business. Ever since the quarter, the stock soared and the analysts have turned a lot more positive. Snowflake pulled back a lot today. Okay, it's down nearly 6%. But it's still up huge versus last Wednesday, which is what matters. Where do I come down on this one? I think it's crystal clear that Snowflake's oddball business model is much more resilient in a downturn than most of us believe. They're thriving at a time when some great software as a service companies are struggling to draw up new business. This has been Snowflake's story all along, but hardly anyone believed them until they reported last week. Unfortunately, though, the stock is still very expensive. Selling for roughly 22 times next year's sales. When we have a lot of companies we like that are selling at 22 times earnings. So that makes Snowflake vulnerable if Jay Powell follows through on his comments last Friday and keeps slamming us with aggressive rate hikes. If Powell really goes full on, almost nothing gets sold. And whether you're using Snowflake's model or the older software as a service one or even an on-prem one, a severe recession kind of does ruin everybody's model. Hence the pressure this whole cohort is under. It is ugly. The bottom line. 
Snowflake was attractive last week because the stock got too beaten down going into the quarter. If you like it, I think you should wait for the next analyst group freak out and drop. Because when they do, they drive the stock down. And they're going to give you a better entry point than you'll have right now after this massive run. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Tell me what we're going to do. It's over. Drew in Connecticut. Drew. Booyah, brother Jim. Great to hear Booyah. from you. Longtime fan of the show. Investing Thank club you. member. Yes. Want to, want to know what you think of Pepsi moving forward. Oh, you know, Pepsi goes in the bullpen. We think a lot of it. I just wish the stock would come down. Doesn't seem to want to come down at all, but it is well run and terrific. Dana in Nebraska. Dana. Hi, Jim. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. What is your take on Kelly Services, K-E-L-Y-A? Very well-run company. Uh, Right now, with people just feeling it's easy to get a job, you don't need them. And that's why that stock's been such a dog. But you never know. I am not a buyer of it right here, though. Let's go to Allen in Florida. Allen. Allen. Jimmy Chill, booyah to you. Booyah, right back at you. What's going on? You know, Jimmy, I've been, I've been hearing a lot of talk about nuclear being clean energy all of a sudden. Worldwide, I'm hearing this. And that it's Correct. needed to help us hit our clean energy goals. Indeed. Elon Musk is on board, Bill Gates, the Biden administration. And presently, 20% of U.S. electricity is from nuclear that we primarily get from Russia. Seems right. to me like we're going to need some American uranium. What do you think about nuclear? Okay, now this is a very, this is Canadian, and the problem with this, this group is so red hot that it is too sizzling for me. So I'm going to take a pass. I know the group's up 7%, the ETF's up 7%. Just today, that is too dangerous for me. I'm going to have to say no for now. Ed in Pennsylvania, Ed. Booyah from the Pocono Mountains, Jim. Oh my, I love the Poconos. What's happening? Oh, Good, good times up here. Hey, I invested some mad money last year in a biotech company that focuses on rare liver diseases. Wanted your thoughts on Mirum Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol oh, M-I-R-M. You know, they are, I'm, I'm afraid they are losing too much money for me to recommend. And, you know, I feel so bad about that because when they're up like that uh, and they're doing some great work in that particular disease, especially with liver, I want to recommend it, but I just am afraid to because this had such a big move. Let's go to John in Oklahoma. John. Hey, Jim. Inspired by your December 1st Mad Money interview with the company's CEO, my friend Amy and I bought a biotech stock, which has since gone up more than 125% due largely to very positive phase three drug trial results. Considering that dramatic increase in value, would you say buy, sell, or hold Karuna Therapeutics? We were believers. We were believers. Now, it does not fit my thesis about what works here, but we found ourselves very compelled and thought that it was an illness that if they could do anything for it, it would be great. So speculative, yes, it's a speculative situation. We've got time for one. We're going to go to Chris in New Jersey. Chris. Mr. Kramer, a big guy yes. from State College, actually home to Penn State. I'm a long time. Per- Penn State. 
We are all over Penn State. Jeff Marks, Penn State. What's up? We are. I appreciate uh, all your insight. I was wondering what you thought of Clap last. I think, that Ma- I think that Matthew Prince is fantastic. The stock is low because they're making just very little money. I'm on the bet with Prince. I think that that's one you can buy and put away. He does a good job. One more. Kara in Colorado. Kara. Hey, Tim. It's Kara and Matt here from Colorado. We're huge fans. First time callers, but it's an honor to chat with you. Just want ah, to know see. what you think about pulling the plug on plug power, or should we do no, that? No, it's okay, man. Andy Marsh was on again today. Andy Marsh, I think he must be a regular in the network because I see quite a bit of him. He's got to get that. Look, he needs something that is very elusive. It's called earnings. And if he gets them, the stock can still go higher. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Working from home or home free from working? Kramer works on a key issue among the labor force. Next. Jim Kramer, the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. to address the persistence of remote work. I spend a lot of time talking to young people, and they're frequently given the option to work from home. It's almost like a perk of job. I get why this happened, and I get why people like it. But from a business perspective, letting people work from home all the time is distinctly suboptimal. There are reasons why we go to work in person, collaboration, training, holding ourselves accountable, increasing productivity. On those scores, working from home is about a one out of a ten. I know it's a 10 out of 10 on personal convenience, but that's not what businesses pay people for. Now, it would be one thing if you could demonstrate a positive return on investment from staying home. There are specific cases where a remote setup makes sense. Maybe we could start to see the wholesale decline in rents that we keep hearing about. If you could get that retreat from the office and have all those commercial buildings turned into rentals, as is the case all around downtown, I could justify going remote from the point of view of the economy would help Fed contain inflation. But I don't think that's what's happening here. In reality, we've got sub-4% unemployment, which means CEOs simply don't have the power or the leverage to stop this. They know remote work is worse for business. They simply don't have a choice if they want to attract employees. So they make up a lot of nonsense about how it's good, even though when I talk to more CEOs than anybody else, they almost universally scorn it behind the desk, in the bar. They can't stand it. They just don't know how to stop it. They can't keep their people if other firms offer a day or two of extra time away from the office. Who doesn't want a three-day weekend? I think people got a taste of freedom from COVID. And as long as we have a tight labor market, they're they're, they're coming back in person. Some of you probably think I'm the fossil who simply demands physical presence as a way to demonstrate authority. But man, there are some things that are much harder to do remotely. As someone who has managed hundreds of people in my life, I watched in total dismay as this work from home continues, even though the COVID vaccines mean there's no longer a public health justification any worse than the flu. Call me old fashioned, but I feel like there should be a place where you work together with your colleagues and collaborate and get to know the culture. Let me give you a perfect example. When I worked at Goldman Sachs in the 80s, I was tasked to help create a retreat so everyone in private wealth management from around the country got to meet each other. 
We knew that if we all got together, we could share context, learn from each other, get to know how the firm works, the ethos of the firm. And it, 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 it is very much had a lot of ethos. I'll tell you, it made us much, much better at our jobs. I think that we need to have a more serious discussion in this country about the pros and cons of remote work. I know that businesses currently don't have much of a choice, but I think millions are in denial here. For most, if not all, the job gets done best at the office. With the crest of the pandemic wave, we need to acknowledge that remote work is a lot less efficient. Executives don't have a choice right now because of the labor shortage. Don't kid yourselves. They're allowing work from home or partial work from home because it somehow makes sense financially. It doesn't. It's so much more expensive to train someone remotely rather than doing it in person. Unless they can close offices and save money and nobody really needs to see or interact outside of work with anybody else, a hard call. Don't believe the work from home hype. It's not more efficient, although from the perspective of someone who works for a living, it's obviously great to have a lot of leverage. I'll tell you one thing for certain. Workers have not had it this upper hand like this for as long as I can remember. Good for them. Jimmy Hoffa's dancing in his unmarked grave. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 